curious if you guys can help me figure something out. In Mark 1, verse 14 to 15, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. What does that mean? Sure. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. The kingdom of God, says some of the other translations. And saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Or repent and believe in the gospel. Anything. Something is going to change. <clears throat> okay. What else? Repentance have to happen first. Okay. What is the kingdom of God, by the way? God's rule being direct and effective into in, in, in this world, yeah. Okay. Through human beings. I'm just repeating it for the sake of of these guys. All right. It's <coughs> it's a very loaded verse. Kingdom of God is ridiculously uh, loaded. Now we hear repent, we hear kingdom of God. And we hear that it is good news. Um, uh, you know, when I, when I think of repent, I don't typically put good news before it, right? So when you say, <coughs> uh, uh, I've got some bad news for you. If you do not repent, things are going to, you know, that's, that's, that's usually how I associate repentance. But, oh, I've got wonderful news. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. It's, it's, it's within our reach. You, you see that there's a, there's a bit of a, uh, what's the word, juxtaposition going on there that, that uh, at least to us moderns, seem to, seems to strike us odd. Now, friends, I am very ambitious tonight. I'm going to, to try and, and take a big chunk. And in, in the Gospel of Mark, things are... Uh, super reduced and it's super compact and there's so much going on in each verse uh, that we're not going to be able to do it justice and forgive me if we are a little bit all over the place but I I hope and pray that there will be some thread that can make sense of us uh, uh, our time here this evening so I'm going to read the first few verses of the gospel according to Mark it starts like this the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the son of God as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. 
Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after Jesus was arrested, uh, sorry, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, "The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel." Now, friends, uh, Peter was probably the main source for Mark's gospel. And one thing that we know about Peter is that that guy was constantly in a rush, okay? He didn't really think things through. Things had to, to go very quickly. Um, so uh, he, he didn't really think before he spoke. So, uh, you know, he says, no, Jesus, don't worry. We will be on your side. Don't worry. Then we, 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 we've got this. And the gospel also has that... Peter-like pace to it, but these things like the temptation of Jesus, um, or the baptism, um, or even just the section of John the Baptist, it, it is treated much more thoroughly in some of the other Gospels, but in Mark, I think, and in, in the others for that matter, we get this thread of things that are connected that I think is, is quite exceptional, and I I hope that we can, uh, we can get something out of it this evening. So we are, we are doing this book club. We are doing this in some of our Bible studies, and we are following it quite loosely on the Sundays. And that is this book by Trevor Hudson called Seeking God. I've said this before, but <clears throat> I listened to an American podcast, Tim Mackey of the, of the Bible Project and John Mokoma, these American... Uh, uh, hotshot, what do you call them, um, Portlanders, and, and then they talk about um, the spiritual guru that, that's just ministered to our souls, and uh, we went to Fuller, and it was just amazing listening to this guy, and, um, and, and they just speak lavishly about the spiritual director, and it uh, turns out, and they talk about the South African professor, and I'm like, oh, what's South African professor over there? And, and, and the name Trevor Hudson. And I Google Trevor Hudson and I phone around or whatever. And it turns out Trevor Hudson stays in Benoni. Um, and and he is, he's coming this way in a few weeks as we try to unpack some of the aspects of his, of his book. And, and what we are doing uh, this evening is the theme of changing direction, repentance. In our search for God, repentance is crucial inasmuch as we want to experience the life of this kingdom that god is that is that 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 is among us that is on offer repentance is crucial and the word repentance has a lot of baggage you know i've you don't see it in south africa that much but in in europe 
and I guess in North America, but definitely in Europe, you'll always find somebody standing on some little uh, tomato crate and he's got his sign, the end is nigh, repent, uh, turn or burn, or, or, or something like that. And, and that's what we associate with repentance. But in this passage that we read, we get a much more nuanced, a much more historically relevant perspective of, of repentance. So let's go through it. So first of all, it starts off with, with John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is sort of at the, at the end of this massive expectation among first century Jews that the God of Israel, Yahweh himself, will come back and he will he will sort out the plight of his people. In other words, he will sort out Israel's enemies and this kingdom, the kingdom of God, will finally be restored. And their vision for that was thoroughly political. They thought that it would uh, somehow be restored to the kingdom of David of old. You know, so, so the, the, the geographical... Uh, um, uh, what do you call it, the borders will be restored, the pagan powers will be removed, etc., etc. So that is the, the, the expectation. And then we read that we've got this guy, John the Baptist, and he is this voice from the wilderness preparing the way. Now, again, this is just this curtain-raiser expectation language. In 2010, when we had the Soccer World Cup um, in, in Pochevstruem, uh, where I was at the time, one of, my, one of my friends was sort of in charge for welcoming the Spanish to their base in Pochevstruem. And this guy had this amazing budget, and he just needed to facilitate this, this, this massive process. And to this, I'm not sure if it's to this day, I know maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you still have Spanish signs all over Pochevstruem. <laughs> That shows where is the sports village where the Spanish team stays. And when they came, they built this, this state-of-the-art soccer field for them, this, this sports village where they stayed and where they trained, this media facilities, every, everything that you can see to this day um, if you go on a pilgrimage to Poch. And, I mean, that Spanish side won the World Cup, so you, you might find some sort of hardcore Spanish football supporter coming here for that. Anyways... And, uh, and when the Spanish finally arrived, they had to make the runway for the Pochevstruem airport. They had to make it longer so that it can handle this Spanish plane that's going to land there. And as they drove in with the bus, you had thousands of Pochevstruemians um, waiting sort of outside of the, of the town, welcoming these Spaniards to their, to their base. Now... I guess one can make a very strong comparison between contemporary religions and ancient religions in the sense that when there was this massive, this dignitary coming to a, to a town in, in, in ancient Israel, then people would go outside of the town, line the streets, and they will be very excited to welcome this dignitary, this visitor, this king back in. And the expectation was very much so that when... Yahweh himself comes, or when his Messiah comes, then we must be ready and we must welcome him. And who is the one preparing the way? It is John the Baptist. Although that word John the Baptist is a little bit misleading because everything we know about John the Baptist suggests that he wasn't the Baptist. He was more a baptizer, okay? If you look, um, um, it, it's, it's a uh, denominational joke, by the way. Um, 
and so, so John the Baptizer is this guy, and this is the curtain-raising moment, but he's a little bit of a crazy dude. He's eating locusts. He's always hunting for honey. He's got, you know, bad fashion sense, but he's this odd guy, and what's peculiar is that he is completely anti-establishment. So, again, first century Israel, if you wanted to meet God, where did you go? To the temple. That is the place that facilitated that. Where are people going now? To the desert. You know, you don't find God in the desert. And, and here's this locust-eating guy, and people are, are streaming there to be baptized in the, in the Jordan River. It, it's as if God is on the move. And in, in Matthew's gospel, you even have some of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to, to John, and he, he says, you brood of vipers, um, repent, repent, because the kingdom of God is, 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 is at hand. So you've got this drum roll. Something is going to happen. Something is going to come. The kingdom is near. The kingdom is near. And then, um, maybe before I, I get there, let me just say this as well. This term of the kingdom of God is very, very political. Today, if you ask somebody, are you, um, what do you do? And they say, no, I sort of um, spend my time you know, working on the kingdom of God. If you're a politician, will you see that guy as a threat? Like, l let's say you're the mayor and, and somebody comes and says, okay, what do you do? No, I, I work for the kingdom of God. They would say, oh, okay, well, lovely. I mean, that's cute. But you won't, you won't think that that person is a threat. But when you said something like the, the kingdom of God back then, that, that assumed that there was a king other than Caesar. That is very problematic. It was very polemical and political to suggest that God's kingdom was going to come and is going to come soon. On top of that, I'm not sure if you guys noticed how Mark begins. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Again, to us moderns, that sounds cute and, and perhaps even neutral. But remember, at that time, you had an emperor in charge. His name was Tiberius. And Tiberius, uh, his stepfather, Octavian or Augustus, he was deified, okay, after his death. And what Tiberius did is he put it on all the coins and he said, and he, he had his little face printed on it and it says, Tiberius, son of the god Augustus. Are you with me? So if you talked about the son of God in the first century, who were you talking about? The emperor, Caesar. So now Mark, who's writing this probably in Rome itself, under the nose of the emperor says, let me tell you about the true son of God, by the way. And it is this Jesus of Nazareth. So, so you've got this standoff between the worlds. You've got the standoff between the temple establishment, religion, so to speak, and John the Baptist hanging around, <laughs> almost unrecognizable here in the desert. You've got the emperor of, of Rome, probably the mightiest empire that's ever existed, and Jesus. And, and, and Mark has the audacity to claim that he is the, the, the son of God. And then John goes, and in verse 9, he says, Behold, behold, Jesus came from, uh, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the, in the Jordan. And before that, John says, the, the one who's coming after me, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and you can just hear the drum roll. Guys, you can be very excited um, about this. I remember once I was <coughs> supposed to meet this uh, CEO of a pretty big company and, and they were giving money away to all sorts of uh, different projects and I had a friend who worked there and I, I went in there because of uh, I, I, I guess um, 
bad upbringing. I went there looking very similar to what I'm looking now. And I'm sitting there in their office <coughs> and we're waiting there. And there comes this very odd guy um, into the office. And I'm, I'm chatting to my friend and he's short and odd looking and whatever. And the, the couch was ridiculously comfortable. So I didn't want to get up. And I'm like, how's it, man? How are you doing? What's your name? Oh, nice to meet you. Oh, like a, like a. And um, very, I, I, I didn't think I was rude, but I, I was very comfortable. And it turns out he's the CEO of this multi-billion um, rand, and I'm not exaggerating with the billion rand uh, a company. And perhaps, it, and, and when I thought, huh, CEO of this company, come on, man, you have to be a little bit taller than that. Um, you have to be a little bit better, well-spoken, like have charisma. How can you be the CEO of, 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 of this thing? I didn't expect it. Now, that is the same that is going on here because it starts off by saying, the drum roll, the one who's coming after me, this is God himself visiting us. And it says, and then Jesus came from Nazareth. <laughs> Why is that interesting? Because one guy who had the guts to verbalize what everybody else was saying was a guy called Nathaniel in the Gospel of John. And when he was told, we found the Messiah. He is from Nazareth. What does he say? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Are you kidding me? And it's, it's, it's a little bit like, guys, I found the next president. I found the guy that is going to save South Africa. He is just around the corner. He lives in Brakpan. And I'm telling you, he is this intellectual, this political heavyweight. Um, he's got the charisma. This is the answer. He's not at UP. He's not at Stellenbosch. He's not in Rondebosch, Cape Town. He is in Brakpan. And on in the bad side of Brakpan, um, as, a, as a matter of fact. And, uh, and on top of that, you've got this strange thing that God himself coming back, and now he wants to be baptized by John. Why is that problematic? Why is it problematic that Jesus wants to be baptized, insists on being baptized? Say again. If, if this is the Son of God who is supposed to be without sin, and this baptism is a baptism of repentance, that is not good PR. And the early church really struggled with this, by the way. Well, some of the early church, the, the criticism, the apologetics against the early churches, why did your Jesus, why was he baptized? Come on. He's the Son of God, and he's... He's blameless. Why does he have this baptism of repentance? And we actually see in Matthew's gospel that John didn't want to do it. No, 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 no. I'm not going to baptize you. You can baptize me, but I don't want to baptize you. And Jesus insists on, on being baptized. And all of this struck a guy like John strange. It was, it was very perplexing. He didn't expect this. And later on, when Jesus announced the kingdom of God and John is in prison, he sends messengers to, to Jesus. And you know what he says? Is there somebody else? Who's going to come? I, I'm not recognizing you. This is not how it's supposed to be. Is this the kingdom of God? I'm, I'm, having, I'm having second thoughts here. And then we've got this word, repent. Repent. Repent can very easily be translated as turn. To turn. And it is almost... As if everybody, the reason why people can't recognize Jesus for who he is, is because we are looking in the wrong direction. We have to turn. We need to, ha we, we need to change our gaze. 
and we need to turn. When I drive around with my boy, um, then all, you know, since I've, got, uh, I've had a boy, I, I just realized there are so many exciting things that happens on the road all the time. You just drive past excavators the whole time, and sometimes they are um, just like big machinery or big trucks and, 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 and whatnot, things that I didn't notice before. And, and then I would say, oh, Loki, look, look the excavator. And then he says, where? And I said, there on your left. Now he's three, and there on your left, he's, he's all over the place. And then... Um, and he gets so annoyed because one thing about driving is that you are very quickly past the excavator. Um, so you need to be very quick in, in pointing these things out. And then often I would just do this very illegal thing of stretching to the back seat and taking his head and just turning it whilst I'm still trying to keep my eyes on the road. Look, there, there's the excavator. And I'm like, oh, wow, thank you, Papa, wow, wow, wow. Um, and, and that's, I think, part of of what is going on with repentance <clears throat> and why it is also preached and spoken about here as Jesus is coming and in the strange and surprising way in which Jesus and in which God comes back to his people is your gaze is in the wrong direction. Turn, turn. Now, friends, we can, when we think of repentance, let's push it a, a little bit more. When we think of repentance, it is often the case that we are, again, just looking at things that is not necessarily as life-giving as life in the kingdom. And there are different things that we in this room need to repent of. Um, and they are not necessarily bad things. They're things like wealth or things like our, our, you know, this hardcore pursuit for justice or financial security or I'm just a very concerned person or I'm just really interested in, in influence or I'm just really invested but these things very quickly become wealth just turns into greed and justice into revenge and financial security into greed and being concerned or invested is just another word for being anxious or gossiping and influence becomes being seduced by by power and our gaze is in those directions and Jesus says, turn, turn, put your gaze on me. First seek the kingdom of God. Look in the opposite direction. And when we do this hard work of repentance, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, repent. When we do this inventory, in other words, we are now supposed to look at Jesus, but what have I been looking at all this time? It can become very dark. One of our cell groups uh, did this this past week and just really thought about what is it that they are keeping their eyes on and what is it that they need to turn away from historically and today. And it's not pretty if you do it well. You can do it superficially and say, oh, yeah, you know what, I, I watch a little bit too much Netflix. Oh, help me, Lord. No, but, 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 but if you dig and you dig and you dig, then you realize that there are some very destructive habits that we ought to turn from. And... When we focus on repentance, especially with this bad reputation that it has, it can very quickly become, oh, I'm so bad and I need to chastise myself and um, how can God ever forgive me for, for who I am and what occupies my thoughts, etc., etc. But there's an important move that we need to follow that goes through this passage that we've read, and that is, as soon as we've got this mention of repentance, the next scene 
is the baptism of Jesus. And in the baptism of Jesus, we've got this beautiful line that says, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. What is beautiful about that is that Jesus' ministry hasn't really started. That message didn't come after... It, it doesn't say, and then Jesus rose from the dead after defeating death and after, um, uh, you know, withstanding the temptation that was thrown against him. And then God said, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. No, no, no. This starts at the beginning of his ministry. This is his identity. This is not his reward. Does that make sense? This is his identity. This is not his reward. But here's the thing. If we want to understand what Jesus did for us, there is a word that is very helpful, and that is substitution, which also helps us understand why Jesus had to be baptized. Because Jesus is now standing in our place, and he is, he is representing humanity. And he needs, to be, he, he needs to repent on our behalf. He needs to do what we cannot do. Also remember that baptism for a first century Jew um, would have been, this language is very rich. So they would have realized, ah, this is, especially because it's in the Jordan River, this is us going away from slavery, going through the waters into the promised land. Think Red Sea being parted. Think Jordan River being crossed. Are you with me? So we need to go from slavery. Um, this is an acknowledgement that humanity is in slavery, but the kingdom of God is at hand, and we're about to enter this promised land. We are bound to enter the kingdom of God, and we need to move through the waters. And Jesus is doing that on our behalf. I know it's a mouthful. Are you guys somewhat with me? And if that is where Jesus is standing in our place in that, in that moment, then the next scene is something that is imparted on us, and that is, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Here's a line that might be helpful. Jesus is taking our place as sinners, so we can take his place as son of God. Can you see this, this, this exchange? He is standing in our place, although he is sinless, he is standing in our place and repenting on our behalf. And this, the, the same thing that is true is when we read this, we can know that those words that are, that are uttered over Jesus is something that we can own ourselves. It is imparted on us. And friends, that belovedness is so crucial. It's so crucial if we are to understand or make sense of repentance. If we do repentance without that, it would just be very dark and very bleak and not very hopeful. But if repentance is something that we do with this knowledge that God the Father is welcoming us home, He cannot wait for us to turn to Him. It's, it's like a father seeing his son doing something naughty or something stupid or whatever, and he just wish his his child will turn around and see him and come, and everything will be restored. But it's a child that needs to do the turning. Again, the prodigal son, <coughs> is, uh, Oscar Wilde said it's the most beautiful uh, story ever told. Um, what do we have? As soon as the son comes, what is the, 
the picture of God that we have. He is this father with arms stretched wide open. Not only that, he doesn't, he doesn't just wait for his son to come in his direction. What does he do? He runs towards his son. And I put this together the other day um, when Dennis Alexander was here. And Dennis Alexander is the scientist. He spoke here a few months ago. And he worked in the Middle East for a long time. And he said whenever visitors came to him, he needed to tell them whether they're in Lebanon or in Turkey, <clears throat> don't run. Don't run. If you are in the coffee shop over here and somebody has gone around the corner, don't run to them <laughs> around the corner. Because in the Middle East, if you run, you are a criminal. It is super undignified for somebody to run. So for this father with a dress to run after his son, is this guy is so undignified and he doesn't care because he cannot wait to be reconciled with his son. That is the picture that we need to have in mind when we think of repentance and coming back. Are you guys with me? And then what is the next scene that happens? We've got repentance. We've got this acknowledgement or affirmation of our belovedness. So we, we, we shouldn't feel overcome by the darkness inside because we know we've got this external identity that is fixed. But what is the next scene that happens directly after that? And then the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness and he was tempted for 40 days by Satan. When, when we repent, we should not be surprised that temptation will follow. Sometimes almost immediately. Satan hates repenters. If you are somebody... <coughs> who doesn't do really a lot of bad things, at least in your own eyes, but you don't really do a lot of great things either. And, and I experience this in Europe a lot. Ah, I don't need God. I'm okay. Like, I'm, I'm not great, but I'm okay. You know, I'm very phlegmatic. I'm just sort of go, going through, through the motions. Satan is very pleased with you. But if you're this, this guy or this girl who really makes bad mistakes, you've slept with this person again, and you shouldn't have done this, and you feel horrible, and... Uh, uh, or, 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 or you've got a temper and you come back and you say, oh, God, help me. What is wrong with me? I, I think you're a bigger threat to Satan than the one who's not a serial repenter. So when you repent, know that you are public enemy number one of the evil one. Now, Michael Ramsden, he's this uh, evangelist, and he, he was also here a couple of years ago, and I remember this one story he told, and it really stuck with me. He said that, he was absolutely infatuated with this girl at varsity. And this girl knew it. And she just, she just played with him. And he just, he, he, it was an obsession for two years that he, he needed to have this girl. He needed to have this girl. And then, to his surprise, didn't look for this, he came to faith. He found Jesus. And he didn't tell anybody about it. It was a private thing that happened sort of away from this university life. And, uh, and, and he just decided to follow Jesus. And two weeks later, this girl comes to him in class and says, you're different. What's going on? He says, really? Am I different? So she says, yeah, you're different. Something happened. He says, well, it's amazing that you would say that because I decided that I wanted to follow Jesus. And she looks him in the eye and says, do you want to sleep with me? <laughs> She doesn't say, 
oh hi she doesn't even respond she does she takes a breath and she looks him in the eye without blinking without flinching do you want to sleep with me and this guy says he paused and he said why didn't you offer this two weeks ago I mean, yes, yes, yes is the answer, but two weeks ago, why would you do that now? That's so unfair. And, um, and, and he said, there's no other way of making sense of it. Why on earth would this girl come just like that, like almost <laughs> possessed, just looked at her, you want to sleep with me? And, um, and, and, and I think it illustrates the fact that when we've made a great breakthrough, whether it is with a begetting sin, with temper, with lust, with whatever. Don't be surprised that there will be a lot of temptation that comes in your, in your direction. All right. What is the final climax of, uh, of temptations that Jesus is tempted with, by the way, when Satan, because this is a very abbreviated version, but if you read in Matthew and Luke, when it, when it fleshes out the temptation, what is the, the climax power. <laughs> Say what? Yeah, with power without sacrifice. In other words, you can have everything. I can give you the kingdoms of this world. That is, everything builds up to that. And to this day, it's probably the biggest temptation. I mean, sex, yeah, it's a big temptation. Money, yeah. But if you go up and down history, power is a thing that corrupts and corrupts absolutely. That is what people crave most in this world. And, <laughs> and they probably uh, like the sex and the money because it is a product of their power. So, so, so it, it is sort of the mother of all, of all temptation. And Jesus resists this. Now, I want to make the jump back to the kingdom of God. So we've spoken about the need for repentance. We've spoken about this dual identity we have uh, when we go through repentance. And we've spoken about the temptation that will follow. But this is all, remember, in the context of Jesus announcing the kingdom of God. And, And Jesus is offered this kingdom of this world. And you constantly see this clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of Caesar and the kingdom of, 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 of God. The kingdom of, of Herod and uh, the, the corrupt temple politicians, which is pretty much the same kingdom and the kingdom of God. You see the standoff. Mark definitely has this in the back of his mind when he opens his gospel like this. You see this standoff. And in the very next passage we see this, this clash, probably best, but it's a little bit hidden. It's in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. <clears throat> Why do we say that is the confrontation between these two kingdoms? Well, if you live in the kingdom of God, you need to know that it's going to be controversial, <clears throat> and it is dangerous. Remember I told you that when you, when you say, oh, kingdom of God, it, 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 it sounds so 
unthreatening, but it's very, very threatening. Why? After Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided among his three sons, Archelaus in the south, Judea, although that was taken over later by, by Pilate and some sort of um, satellite Roman um, uh, government. You had Antipas in the north, and you had Philip to the east, modern-day Jordan. And, and they ran the show after Herod the Great's uh, death. And Antipas, Herod Antipas, married Philip's wife. So she took, he took his brother's wife and into his kingdom. Okay, so he takes him from modern-day Jordan and uh, takes Herodias to, to, to be his wife, so they divorce, and he's got his, this wife now in, in modern-day Galilee. And there is one prophet, John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, who says, uh-uh, you're not allowed to do that. That is, uh, that's illegal. And, and this is truth spoken to power, and Herod Antipas doesn't like this, so he arrests John, because how dare he tell him uh, how to live his life. So now he's in prison. And remember, Antipas's reign is in which section? In Galilee, in the north. So as soon as John is, be, is, is arrested by this kingdom of this world, this, this show of power of the, of the then known world, what does Jesus do? After John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Can you see how confrontational that is? John is arrested in Galilee. Jesus goes to Galilee, to this tyrant, and he proclaims the gospel of God under the nose, under the nose of Herod Antipas. Are you guys with me? Confrontational. It is dangerous. Again, you see the, the clash of these, of these kingdoms. There's nothing sentimental about the kingdom of God. It's confrontational, it's dangerous, but at the heart of it, it is different. The kingdom of God is different than the kingdom of this world. What, what uh, Satan offered Jesus in his temptation in the wilderness, you can have power over, over all of these, it is not the same. And I'm not sure if any of you guys actually saw the little advert, but we've got this little clickbait uh, uh, advert for this evening, and we mentioned Gaza and the Palestine conflict. Did anybody see that? Did anybody come because of it? <laughs> okay. Um, so, so you guys fell for the clickbait. My, my apologies, um, Michelle. But let me, just, let me just try and say something about it. What we see in Gaza... What we see in Israel for the last uh, few decades, maybe even a, a century or so, is this, is this clash of the kingdoms of this world. What I mean by that is we see the Palestinians fighting fire with fire. We see the Jews fighting fire with fire. And we see this cycle of revenge and retaliation repeated again and again. Those of you who saw the images of Hamas 
in, during that day, day of terror in the music festival and, and, and everything that, that came to our screens, it, it, it was horrific. And you just knew that the retaliation was going to be immense. And every bomb that falls in Gaza is just a new little terrorist in the making in the next generation. New tunnels to be dug, new drones to be acquired. And the conflict is just perpetuated in the process. And Jesus invites us in this kingdom of God to break this cycle. And it's not something that I think people who are constantly talking about identity and power and that first, and I'm not saying those things are not important, but if that is the only thing that you are fighting for, then this whole, your little kingdom will also come crumbling down. And Jesus is saying, what is the kingdom of God? What does it look like when the kingdom of God breaks in to this horrible conflict that we're seeing in the Middle East? There's a guy who died in September of this year that I think everybody should know about, and I think nobody knows about. Has anybody ever heard of Uwe Holmer? He's a, he's a German, and I probably just butchered the pronunciation, but it's at least spelt Uwe Holmer. How am I doing? Uwe Holmer? Okay. <laughs> and, and he was a pastor in East Germany. And in East Germany, you had this very harsh communist government. And it is insane. I, I was in Germany just a few months ago. And Sometimes I want to, I just go back to the Stasi headquarters. The Stasi headquarters were the secret police in East Germany. Now, if you take, um, and forgive me for the stereotype, but if you take this German obsession with uh, just getting things done and administration, and you put a very bad communist regime with that, then you've got like a very well-functioning bad idea. <laughs> you know, it's this, it's this cocktail. Um, and in a population of something like 19 million, my, my numbers are a little bit off, but in a population of 19 or so million, they had more than 120,000 official spies, and they were mostly spying on their own population, okay? So that was probably, <laughs> probably the the biggest employer in East Germany was not teachers, not nurses, but spies, okay? And then eventually when the Berlin Wall fell, they realized that they had something like 40% of the population on their payroll or in their pockets spying on their brothers, spying on their fathers, on their sons, on their wives, etc. It was insane. And because they're German, everything was very well documented so they could track they could track that down. And the leader of the, the biggest part of the, the existence of East uh, Germany, of this regime, was a guy called Erich Honecker. And this guy um, was very efficient, very committed uh, to the cause, and they just controlled every aspect of life. And if you wanted to resist the, this regime, you were in the church, because it was the only thing that wasn't banned, and you could somewhat criticize 
government from, from, from within, within the church. And if you were in the church, then this massive centralized bureaucratic system will just block you at many places. So if you, you can be the best person in your particular profession, if you go to church, then you can't get that uh, position. If you want your trabant, which is the, you know, the, the, the car that you got um, in, in the communist world, you had to wait 10 years for that, you're a Christian, make it 20 years or, or 25 years, then you can get your trabant. You want that apartment, uh, let's, uh, let's see, maybe we can put you somewhere down there in, a, in, a, in an attic or something. So at every point, because you are constantly at the mercy of this massive government, they just block you and block you and block you. And uh, most notably, I guess, is the fact that you can have the best marks in the land. Don't think that you're going to get into university. It is impossible. Um, and, and this is how they operated. And his wife, Ingrid, they called her the Purple Witch because she was responsible for blocking everybody. And they had spies. They had literally, I, I, I went on a communist tour the other day, and um, this, guy, this guy said that um, his mother was uh, was asked to sit outside the church on Sundays and just make a note of everybody who attended church and then go back and report it to the authorities. So that's, that's their job. And again, they don't kill them, but they just block them in every sector of society. So the Berlin Wall falls, and people want Erich Honecker, and they want his head very quickly because he is responsible for most of this. And they immediately throw him out, out of his house. Now he's on the streets. He's effectively homeless, and what's going to happen now? A mob, or two, um, a mob will sort him and his family out within a day or two. And Uwe Holmer, who had 10 kids, all his kids have been blocked for further education from Ingrid herself. Uh, they have harassed their church and their family for many, many years. Uwe Holmer makes contact with Honecker and his wife, Ingrid, and say, you can come and stay with me. For months, this former leader of East Germany, of this, this horrible communist regime, stays with the pastor. And I think there's a German movie now um, out about it. I think it's called Honecker and the Pastor. You know, they living together. And what happens now is Honecker, I mean, is, is Homer celebrated for his mercy and kindness by the general population? What do you guys think? No, his house is being vandalized. Um, <clears throat> he, he needs to answer to everybody. Again, he is now blocked in society, this time by the mob. And people ask him, why do you do this? Why do you do this? This guy has shown no remorse because Honecker never showed any remorse. He's, he, he died committed to the cause. And he just said, because in the kingdom of God, this is what is required of us. That's what we pray every day. Forgive us our sins and, 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 and forgive those who trespassed against us. Is that not a prayer that we pray every day? How can I not live in that reality? And when he does that, he, he receives stones from both sides. And I thought about that when I thought about this, this conflict again, and that is, if it's all just going to be retaliation, retaliation and retaliation, this conflict is never going to end. And I don't want to sentimentalize this. I know it is ridiculously complicated and difficult. 
But what I do know is that somebody like Uwe Holmer just had the kingdom of God breaking into that broken society for a moment. And it was because of his insistence on forgiveness and hospitality. In Luke 13, let me just read this to you, and I, I promise you I'm, 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 I'm close to, we're close to the end. The end is nigh. Um, We've got this, this, this passage, I've spoken about it before, but it's, it's just so apt. You've got these people trying to get Jesus on board with their revolution. Be on our side, we've got a just cause. And they say, this is Luke 13, there were some present at that very time and told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with that of the sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What's going on? You've got these Jewish nationalists who want their kingdom. They want the kingdom of Israel. They want to get rid of these heathens. They are seeing red, and that red is for revolution. They want to get rid of these guys at all costs. And Jesus says, unless you turn, unless you repent, unless you turn away from this destructive path, you will all perish. That message is as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. And what we know about from history is that Jesus' words were not heeded. They chose revolution. They did not choose the path of Jesus. And the Romans came and they destroyed the temple and the Jewish people were without a, was without a homeland for, for almost 2,000 years. There's this tragic and amazing story of Masada, which is this fort in, in Israel and where, where these people revolted against them and then the last stand was on Masada and they, they managed to survive there for years and the, the Romans couldn't touch them. And then eventually when the Romans built this massive ramp to get on top and to, to take Masada, they found all of the, the warriors who survived up there for a very long time dead. Found all of them dead because they fell on their own swords. Um, well, actually, I mean, there's another story about how they killed each other and the last person had to commit suicide. But um, they found them dead because... They chose revolution and nothing else. And nothing came of it. They all perished because they didn't turn. They didn't repent. And I, I can't help but think about that when I think of this Palestinian conflict. And by the way, I can't help but think about that when I think of this South African conflict. If you think you've got a cause as a white person um, who, who's now maybe at the receiving end of affirmative action or whatever, maybe you've got a cause. But I can assure you, if you do not repent and turn from this nationalistic, um, perhaps even harboring racist thoughts, you will perish. Maybe you're a black nationalist and you want the land and you want it now. If you do not turn from these nationalistic hardcore, you will perish. So friends, as I try to land this sermon, <laughs> with so many threads, and I apologize again. I want us to remember that the context of this talk is the fact that we are trying to seek God, and we're on a little journey at the end of the year trying to seek God. 
And the critical part of trying to seek God is repentance. So what I want us to do now is just in silence. You can close your eyes. You can maybe make a list uh, if you want on your phone or maybe you've got a notebook. But I want you to make a list of the things that you need to turn away from. What are the things that you need to repent of? Whatever repentance, whatever the things are that you are repenting from now, bear in mind it needs to infiltrate and soak your repentance. And that is the beloved identity that you have in, in God, our Father, who is just waiting for you with open arms. What temptations are you susceptible to? If you repent now, you know you've got certain begetting sins. What are the things that has historically and can so easily tempt you? And then lastly, as we try to discern how to respond to these temptations and these things that has our gaze that we need to turn from, this invitation to live in the kingdom of God is in front of us. What do you think is the kingdom of God response to these specific things that you are struggling with? Maybe think of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, just biblical wisdom and how it ministers to these problems.
Lord Jesus, may we repent and turn and live in the kingdom that you have given us, the kingdom that is among us. May we, may we experience as we repent this wonderful identity that we have in you, this belovedness. Lord Jesus, help us to just be a little bit of light that breaks into this dark world as the kingdom of God is enacted through us. Thank you, Lord, that you repented on our behalf and that because of what you've done, we are all called sons and daughters of God. Help us to live in that reality. Help us to first seek your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to swear our allegiance to Jesus, our crucified King. Amen.